Welcome to Series 2 of the Big Beatles Sort Out. In the first series, I, author and musician Gary Abbott, ranked all the Beatles' core catalogue releases with the help of my Beatles expert brother Paul. In Series 2, we are looking at a selection of unreleased songs and alternative versions that appeared in the anthology, songs they wrote for other artists and more. So join us as we continue to sort out the Beatles. Welcome to episode 50 and welcome to It's Paul in the Mind, Abbott. Oh, that's a very good one. I like that. Hiya, Paul. Episode 50. Yes, isn't that good, isn't it? That's that's a good number. It is. I mean, we've, we've done more than 50 episodes when you count the bonuses. But as yes. far as, you know, strictly numbered main season well, episodes. Well, you know, everything's about you and numbers, isn't it, really, yeah. when it gets down to it. <laughs> and strange systems that don't make sense. This is kind of episode yeah. 50, but also kind of episode 55 or 56 or something. But um, mm-hmm. it's our 50th full-length, proper full episode. So well done to us. Yes. We are great. Yes. And don't forget, you can follow us at big underscore sort on Twitter and Instagram or email us at bigbeetlesortout at gmail.com. And please like and share our posts if you do these things and tell everyone about us. That would be lovely. Paul, have you got anything um, to, to tell the good people? No, nothing particularly at the moment. We've got some stuff coming up that we'll share when we can do on uh, oh, yeah. our various stuff, various social medias and things. Well, appearing elsewhere Mm, um but yeah nothing particularly from me i just hope everyone's had a lovely christmas and is keeping safe and well yes yes by now you should have all had christmas so happy christmas for last week yeah and look forward to a new year because you won't hear to us i hope you got lots of beatles goodies yes um for me as always check out any links i put in the episode descriptions they tend to got you know uh, my latest songs or whatever on there um and also i want to do this week paul a new section that may only be a one-off section that i'm going to land on you oh it's called read paul about it read all read paul about it read paul are you trying to fit abbott in there as well about yeah read paul about it oh heck this is new section where i land things on you without any preparation and see what if if um things i've randomly seen on social media and i want to run by you and see if it's true okay right so this is the statement paul hot off the press George was the first Beatle to play America. Right, okay. True or false? And I don't know... Well, he was the first Beatle to visit America. I know that much for for definite, because he had family out there. Okay. So his sister, Louise, went over to America, Mm. and uh, that then led to him and and his his parents visiting. Yeah. And he was very enthused by it, very excited by it. Um, whether the playing part of it, I'm not sure about actually, uh, whether he jammed with anyone or played guitar out there. I mean, he probably would have done because he was of that age where he didn't like to not be playing guitar. Well, exactly that. So according to something on Facebook, so this is why, you know, check your sources. So that's what I'm doing with you, but I seem to uh, be the source. Is that during the summer of 1963, although the, um, the Beatles had, you know, a number one in England and still unknown in the US... When uh, George took a holiday with his brother and visited their sister in Benton, Illinois, um, they end, he ended up playing, basically, with a local band, um, which okay. he'd already jammed with in his sister's living room. They asked him if he'd sit in on a gig, introducing him as the Elvis of England. He made uh, his American debut playing songs such as Johnny Be Good, Your Cheating Heart and Teddy Bear in front of between 75 and 100 people. So well, that's from a tourist information plaque board possibly although you know 
by um, the Saline County Tourism Board and the Illinois State Historical Society. So this may, you know, this is, I'm just throwing that out there. Who knows? I just that's, that's well, it's it's fairly well researched his relationship with uh, America in, in the sense of um, uh, we know that he went out there of course of his sister and Louise Harrison was a very really important part of the getting the Beatles noticed in America, you know, because they okay. could send stuff to her and she could try and get local DJs and because she lived in Illinois, so that was like trying to get Chicago involved. I've just finished a book actually by John F. Lyons, who's one of our mates on Twitter, hmm. about um, the Beatles' relationship with the city of Chicago, which is very good, called Joy and Fear. And okay. it's about how they, what it was like for them touring there, the sort of bands they influenced, the sort of political issues they caused with people who didn't want them to be there and all that sort of stuff. So... Yeah, the Beatles and Chicago is very interesting. I like those sort of case studies about particular places and times. And uh, uh, yeah, a lot of that relationship is is down to Louise being over there in Illinois. Okay, well, that's. I don't think we can say one way or other whether it's just some rubbish on Facebook or not. But it's worth. Oh, I'm it. sure it's true. I'm Someone sure it's has, true. Yeah, it seems like a strange thing to make up, and it sounds like a very likely thing, doesn't it? So that was that. Yeah. That was read Paul about about it. Um, it doesn't really <laughs> work, a, does it? It's not a snappy title. No. Um, the other thing I want to mention as well is to say um, that we had one of our listeners got in touch by email, Dylan, to send his own um, chart with his own methodology that he'd done. And ah, I've brilliant. shared a couple of emails with him about that and uh, just to say how nice that was, really. Thanks for, for getting did in it, touch with us. Did it uh, tally with yours in any way? Um, I haven't gone through it song by song because it's a quite a big thing, but it, the, the, a lot of the top kind of um, 10 or 20 looked about the same and right then um, we had a couple of notable differences um, but his his chart was slightly different he kind of he'd mixed production and music basically and he'd introduced that category that I nearly did which is the kind of what do I just think about it in general category yes and when he had a cover without lyrics he just averaged the remaining scores so that right, they didn't exactly. suffer so yes. Yeah, well, so, things without lyrics is going to come up in this episode, mm, isn't it today? Yeah. So, but my methodology will not change. <laughs> but um, thanks, Dylan. Um, always nice to hear from people. Brilliant. Inspired to, to do the exercise, which is actually an exercise in enjoying the music more, but for people who sometimes need to write things down a lot. <laughs> right. yeah. Uh, so yeah, um, shall we do on this Beatles Day then, Paul? Yes, definitely. Which, which Let's would do be that. The twenty seventh of December. It is the twenty seventh of December, and what I have done. Rather than pick one 27th of December, I've picked a selection of 27th of December's because they're all quite interesting. Ooh. So as a bit of a Christmas bonus, I know it's a, you know, all your sort of two days out of Christmas and you're still feasting on leftover turkey and ham <laughs> and all that stuff and what have you. You can sit back and enjoy a whole selection of 27th of December from the past. Starting with September the 27th, 19... Yeah, September. December the 27th, 1960. Mm. Which is where the Beatles play the Litherland Town Hall show, otherwise known as the Direct from Hamburg show. So oh, yeah. they've done their first Hamburg season and they come back as a sort of changed band. You know, they've they've had their first block of like boot camp, you know, performance yeah. life in Hamburg. And it's the show that changes their fortunes locally in Liverpool. Although ironically, Litherland, you don't think of Litherland, well, I don't now, as being Liverpool because it's way up in North Liverpool. And it's not somewhere you would go from the sort of suburbs down here up to Litherland. But at that time, there was so many more venues, cinemas, uh, places to play all around that certain places turned out to be quite important. And Litherland Town Hall was. Uh, 
Mm. One of them, it is now an NHS centre, like a, a doctor's and consulting place. Yeah. Which I have been to as part of my job for some reason. Once to do some filming filming work in there and just being in there. I've probably mentioned this at some you point in the past. It, yeah, you've mentioned it. Yeah, just being in there and knowing what it was, mm. where it would have been the ballroom, the site of this show would have been, it was amazing to me. No one else cared. It was telling, all starry-eyed. <laughs> but yeah, so 27th of December, 1960, Litherland Town Hall, direct from Hamburg. Mm-hmm. So that's a very significant date. 1961, they had the, the Beatles Christmas party at the Cavern. Okay. So they did like their Christmas gig with Jerry and the Pacemakers and King Size Taylor and the Dominoes. You have 1962, they're in Hamburg on their final sort of residency in Hamburg. 1963 sees the publication of that very famous piece of newspaper writing about them by William Mann in the Times, the article called What Songs the Beatles Sang, where it's like that one where he's talking about clusters of Aeolian cadences and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Those submediant switches from C major into A flat major and to a lesser extent, mediant ones. And the thing that for years later, the Beatles just found it hilarious because it was like, Mm. just because someone wrote about them in that, that way yeah that suddenly people started to take them seriously whether they whether it was as a result of this i don't know it would have influenced some people because it was a first time of applying a little bit of the uh, you know musical theory to it oh it was it was it submediant key switches so natural is the aeolian cadence at the end of not a second time comparing them to marla's song of the earth and stuff like that wow but yeah, it's the one for years later there. They're still taking the mickey out of that phrase, Aeolian cadences, uh, which I'm not I'm not entirely sure works in music theory, the phrase Aeolian cadence, but that's for another discussion. Uh, 1963, they also have, um, that's the uh, start of the Christmas show season, I think. Uh, 1967, we have Paul on the David Frost show, justifying Magical Mystery Tour. Right, okay. So... Doing that thing where he immediately was like on TV on the defensive talking to David Frost. Sort of half apologising, mainly justifying. Okay. So so the 27th of December has been an interesting day over some of the 60s for the Beatles. They don't get much of a rest, do they? No, indeed. Over Christmas Uh, and and New Year's, as I think I remember was covering last year. Well, certainly certainly in the early part of their career when they're doing those Christmas shows. Yeah. So they like they get literally get Christmas off, but otherwise they're in the middle of like a three week run of essentially yeah, yeah. doing a pantomime slash performance. I say I'm, I'm rewatching the anthology series now. I've I've got it on DVD, and it's a uh, it's just exhausting the idea of it. I just think it's it's amazing really how how hard they worked. Yeah, I don't even think the anthology does it justice in terms of how hard they worked. It obviously does the big figurehead stuff of the tours and stuff like yeah. that. But at no point do they mention this fact, like, we didn't really have Christmas to ourselves because we were doing pantos, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. with massive groups of people and all this sort of stuff. It's so much more than they could ever have fit into it's the anthology. It's not just these, these foreign tours, is it? It's just no, their, no. their day-to-day life, every, you know, when they're back in England as well. Yeah, the domestic stuff. Yeah, okie doke. Well, there we go, a, a cluster of 27ths to yes. keep us going then. So we'll get on with the next five from the songs they gave away, which is this, the second to last part. So we've got this week and next week of these. So we'll get the next five done. And the first up is Woman, Peter and Gordon. Woman, do you love me? Woman, 
Woman, Paul. M- man, Paul. Um, yeah, there's nothing. I can't. It's a rubbish joke, isn't it? Uh, well, who wrote this one, Gary? Uh, Paul McCartney. No, Bernard Webb wrote this one. Oh, is that why? Okay, tell That's me. That's the important thing to remember. This is this was put out. It's a single by Peter and Gordon, written by Bernard Webb. And they finally but, become embarrassed of having all their songs written by Paul McCartney. And John kind Lee. of, yeah. yeah. That's kind <laughs> <Right>. of it. <laughs> it's kind of that and also Paul saying, well, I, I think I could prove that I could write a song that's a hit without, without my name uh, okay. being attached to it. The problem is, of course, that it comes out and the copyright notice on it is Northern Songs. Right. And the copyright notice in the American pressing is Maclen Music, which was the American publishing arm. Right. So... It wouldn't have taken anyone very long to figure this out. And they sort of say, oh, well, it was a hit before anyone figured it out in a couple of weeks. There would have been people who would have picked that disc up and known straight away. Yeah. Um, I don't think it got into the press particularly that quickly. Although there were some sort of sideways comments in some reviews sort of saying, oh, this could almost be by Paul McCartney. It's that good mm. type thing. But yeah, so it, it is Paul McCartney and it's it's... It's sort of now credited when it turns up on things as, as by Paul McCartney. In fact, there's a little bit of him singing it in Get Back. Yeah, I was it, going to ask you about that. Are they talking about something he did for Peter and Gordon? In that yeah, he sat at the one. piano, he's playing it, doing yeah. Be My Woman. Yeah, yeah, do, yeah. Doing a funny voice and talking about it, and it credits it as Paul McCartney on the screen there. Um, yeah, so it's obviously Paul doing another song for Peter and Gordon. He's... Uh, his girlfriend's brother and and mate at this point, and it is a hit. Mm. It's uh, it's released on the tenth of January nineteen sixty six in America, eleventh of February nineteen sixty six in the UK. So that we know that the American market was huge for Peter and Gordon. It comes yeah. out on Columbia, spends seven weeks in the chart in the UK, and peaks at number twenty eight. So it's not a massive no, hit not. here. Okay, I thought yeah. it's still quite a big hit. Yeah, you know, it's but it's. Um, yeah, they were they were bigger in America, as we've discussed in the back in the back in the in the past. In the Around the back, don't we? I'm talking about in the back. Oh, have you heard Peter and Gordon? <laughs> they're bigger in America. Yeah. <laughs> Stood by the bins. Yeah. Um, so I don't know what happened there. Sorry. Sorry. As we have discussed in the past. Yes. Yeah. So it's. I don't know when it was. Uh, so what did it do in America? Sorry, did you say? Uh, why did uh, it sorry, get... I haven't got. I haven't got the information in front of me of where it actually got on the chart higher than that. I think. Mm. Uh, yeah, I've not got the information on the day it was recorded, but it's uh, it was arranged and conducted by Bob Leeper, who, for some reason on the American label, he's listed as Bob Peeper. Okay. P-E-I-P-E-R. It's like, his, his name is Bob Leeper, not Bob Peeper. Right. But also, an interesting thing is some of the US pressings, the very initial US pressings, don't have Bernard Webb as the uh, writer's name. They right. have A. Smith. Okay. And, if, and in fact, some of them have a misprint, and it's A. Smuth. Blimey. So yes, the record went through the uh, yeah, yeah didn't didn't do so well um, as far as printing and getting people's names right. Go, yeah, who, yes. produ- who produced it? Sorry, Did, was it the same guy? I'm not sure who produced it. Actually, uh, I couldn't find that information yeah. here. This is an enigma. This one, isn't it? yes. I'm sure someone will know, but I didn't track it down, and I didn't want to just assume it'd be the same person who'd done all the other stuff because oh. it doesn't feel like it, especially given the the sound of the record. No, not at all. Yeah, I mean it's um, 
I also wanted to check because the obvious thing here is, I mean, what what year did we say this was again? Nineteen sixty-six. It comes out so early nineteen sixty-six. It's much much earlier than John Lennon's Woman. Oh yeah, by a long long way. And so it's just a strange thing that there's two songs that both are called Woman by Lennon and McCartney independently of each other, pretty much. That start with Woman, but then yes. go in very very different directions. You know. Um, well, not massively different directions, but but quite notably different directions. You know. Well, they're, yes, they're they're different songs at different times. But yeah. Such a sort of simple concept for a title for a song and a hook. Yeah. The, na- the word woman. Um. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So interesting. But I I think I'm surprised it didn't get a very high in, in the UK. Mind you, none of them have in the UK as much as um in America have they? But because I think this is a, a pleasantly different sound from Pezza and Gordy this time. I think. Oh, your mates. Yeah, my mates. First of all, um, I mean, you could t- there's no way you wouldn't know it was McCartney. If, you know, it, it's pretty daft because it's kind of got him in its musical bones throughout, hasn't it? Yeah. It's, it's you know, we've got those, it helps that we've got those kind of Martin-esque strings throughout anyway, even though it isn't George Martin. It's being arranged in a way that puts you in mind a bit of, I don't know about that, really. I don't think it's anything like his orchestration. Not? I think no. this, this puts me in mind a bit of some of the, some of the, not maybe not this precisely that what the strings are playing and how they've been written, but the fact that you would arrange the kind of Paul McCartney song with strings this way, it it's it it becomes very McCartney like. They almost feel like they're singing it very McCartney like as well, like they're almost doing it. They've got a different voice on than some of the songs we've done of theirs already. And I feel like they're they're kind of almost singing it, doing a McCartney a bit. It's 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 very. But then I guess it's a bit more like later McCartney solo stuff, where it's kind of unapologetically romantic, melodic and upbeat. I could hear this as a Paul McCartney solo song, not no problem. No, uh, I don't know. I mean, I I sort of get what you mean because of his his approach to melody. Mm. But I think I don't know. I'm I'm not I'm not mad keen on this song. I'll be not? honest. No. Wow. I mean, I think it works for the most part. Um, it goes they, dum dum, like we were talking about with other songs. Yeah, dum, dum. It, it you know it puts me in mind of you've lost that loving feeling in part. That's uh, exactly what I've written oh, here. And it? it would not it uh, it would not surprise me if he's not written it because of that sound. So yeah. you've lost that loving feeling. You know, to it's one of the best known songs in the world ever. Yeah, the Righteous Brothers song, and that's obviously a huge wall of sound Phil Spector thing. Yeah. On that, and that was done a couple of years before this. Okay. And I'm pretty sure McCartney's targeted that. And if it's not McCartney, then what's happened is the arrangement yeah. and conducting has been designed that way. Yeah, big, overblown, romantic, soulful. Yeah. I think um, P-Dog and G-Boy sing it quite like <laughs> quite well. You can't say that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I do. I like it for the most part. It's, it's a bit busy here and there. Um, although I... I I do like the break where they sing in canon for a couple of lines. And that's interesting because did you notice McCartney's doing that a lot in the first episode of Get Back? He's often singing the line that John's singing a bit behind him is to see if that would work. He's yeah, like, you just try things out like that. Yeah. yeah, and they do. They actually do. They have a whole section in this, don't they, where they sing and one of them sings yeah. and then the next one. It's funny It's funny with this Peter and Gordon. It's the thing you think of with this or thing I think of with this is well, it's two voices in harmony. Mm. And although there is harmony bits in this, and then there's little vocal things like the, you know, the singing, yeah. staggered singing stuff. 
it doesn't really make much of their harmony vocal abilities throughout. You know, sometimes the harmony sort of lost, almost like a backing vocal rather than it yeah, being two guys together. It's very different than before where it's all been about locked in harmony, isn't it? It's Yeah. You could almost identify a lead vocalist in this, for sure. Yeah, I think I think it's Gordon, isn't it? Yeah. It's 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 a different it's a departure. But it's a departure for I like. So I'm giving it seventy for music. Right, fair enough. Production then. I don't think the production quite lives up to the music though. I think the arrangement's fine. Like I said, I could imagine this arrangement coming from a George Martin type of figure. But I don't think um the way they've pushed the orchestration to the kind of overblown fanfares and orchestral swells and whatnot. Um, I think it gets a bit too busy and harsh when it all comes in together. If you look this up on Spotify, yeah, you basically get two hits, two main hits when you do your search yeah. for it. And if you listen to the first version that comes up, it is one of the worst mixes. Is that the non-remastered? Because isn't there a remastered one? Well, the, no, the remaster one is 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 a bit better, even though it claims to be mono. It's actually very clearly That's stereo. I listen to yeah. Yeah, so that if if you're going to listen to it, listen to the 2003 remaster where it, you, it more clearly brings up the the band instruments like the guitars and drums yeah. in one speaker and it lessens the orchestra in the other side yeah. and it makes the voices stand out more clearly and gives them more space to breathe sort of in the in the mix. The other one on there is just like being pummeled around the head by a brass section. It's... Yeah. and Because uh, a lot of the, uh, the recording of this, the strings are very close mic'd, mm. which is a very pop thing to do, especially with cellos and stuff like that. Bom, 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 bom. But yeah. it's so up in the mix and it never lets up. There's no dynamics in this. It just goes constant. It just starts loud. Well, the dynamic is loud and then louder. Well, that's it. Yeah. As the song progresses and builds up, it just gets worse and worse production. So it starts much better than it ends because it's it, the crescendo of the instruments don't, don't have anywhere to go. So it just becomes a, a, a cacophony of sounds, yes. especially when the horns go very um, fortissimo. And the yes. uh, and the strings go into a very very high register. And yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit squeaky. much in it. But I like I like the ambition of it, and when it works, I think it, it gets going in places. I don't. I think it's a it's a more of a technical problem. Um, I, I think what they were trying to do is is quite good. So I'm going to give it 68 for production. Mm. I don't think it's like, I and mean, we've heard some much much worse. And I like it when the, I, I like what they what they're generally trying to go for. I just think there's times where it doesn't work as well. Yeah, I would just say to everyone, listen to that 2003 remaster, and at least gives well, that's the one I get more to, of a sense of the of all of the instruments yeah. more clearly, and the voices more better balanced. And that's probably why I've i I think it's okay because that's the one I've I've listened to. So well, it's because it's the only one that's more or less listenable to. Uh, so yeah, I'm scoring against that one. Um, so yeah, nothing else in production unless you've got something. No, no. Leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> lyrics, lyrics. Then, um, well, I've mentioned about the similarity of John's woman in that, like, it starts with the word woman. Um, but that initial lyric, even though it is, I'm sure there's lots of there must be lots of songs that just have woman. It's that pregnant pause after that first line, woman. You know, it's like there's a, it's that that declaration, that feminine yes. declaration, and the and the I the also that because it's it's the it's the hook, it's the lyrical hook that uses. You could see the word woman as being a bit, you know, um, I don't know, diminutive, dismissive. I don't know, subservient sounding word, but it yeah. kind of brings it belies that it's actually a tender 
yearning love story. They both got that in common, I think, the two songs. It's yeah. It's not actually saying woman cook my tea or anything stupid like that. It's 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 priming you for kind of like oh, it's it's something about the word woman. I don't know straight more than man. I think it's got it's it's a loaded word to use in that way. But then it goes into a romantic kind of usage. So that's that's nice. Um, yeah, and it hints at a, a, a love story behind it. But you can get from the lines like I still may have lost you and do you love me? It's which. Gets it into that you've lost that loving feeling territory a bit, doesn't it? Yes. It has some impact, I think. I quite like the lyrics as well. Oh, blimey. What, do you even like the line, if you'll say that my girl is my woman? <laughs> Which is an awful, awful line. Well, maybe not that line, but, you know, in overall, what it's doing for the song, um, I've given it 62 for lyrics. Which gives mm. it 66.7 overall. Well, there you go, then. <laughs> So I feel like I've really annoyed you by actually scoring. No, this. you have annoyed me. The song annoys me. I, I, Don't you like yeah, it? I, I just, I really liked it. It's a funny one because apparently Peter and Gordon thought it was like, or certainly Gordon, uh, Gordon Waller thought it was like the Peter and Gordon song. All right. You know, there's a quote that from him that's saying you can sing it without any music, you can sing it with one guitar, you can sing it with a band, or you can do it with a bloody orchestra. Right. And. I know, I know he's right, and with that, and, and in fact, I'd probably prefer to hear someone do it with one guitar, yeah, than that. Um, hey, but it's uh, yeah, it, it just doesn't do it for me. I'm that's, afraid. That's what. That's, that's, Got to number fourteen in the Billboard Hot 100 in America. Oh, okay, you've, you've okay, so, well, it's not not bad. And we've got no Beatles version to hear, have we? So we've got nothing. No, but, just just that bit from Get Back. Yeah. So. Um, Woman. Yeah, which. Um, We'll just have to go and watch. <laughs> yeah, so, I'm sure plenty of people have. Yeah. Um, so we'll move on to the next one, Paul, which is Love in the Open Air, George Martin Orchestra. open air pool you have to be careful about that in case of uh, inclement weather or thistles mm. uh yes i think it's probably worth pointing out at this point by the way just generally yeah that when we talk about beatles giving songs away at this point we're basically talking about paul yeah uh, so when does john just stop as he never does he never really give any more songs away after a certain no uh, you, you know you know he may have contributed here and there to some of these things yeah uh, even this poten- potentially but even if it ends up credited to lennon mccartney by this point john's sort of checked out of writing for other people yeah so but paul is very enthusiastic until in certain cases he has to do a bit more work than he expected and we're about to talk about that now right okay so yeah so this is the a single that comes out to accompany the uh, soundtrack to the film The Family Way, which yeah. is a film I still haven't watched. No, I don't think I've I've got seen. it saved on me uh, box from it being on Talking Pictures TV, uh, the best TV channel in the world, and I still haven't watched it. Uh, but yeah, Love in the Open Air is the A side of this, and the B side is actually a McCartney song as well, which is the, the theme from The Family Way, mm-hmm. which is essentially the same thing but in a very different arrangement. But actually, 
it's George Martin with a, a fragment of a tune that he dragged out of <laughs> out of McCartney's brain. Right. Eventually, uh, it's recorded on the fifteenth of December, nineteen sixty six, and for a, a few dates around there, it's recorded in CTS Studios. Okay. Which we've mentioned a couple of times in relation to the Beatles. It was a place set up very much for doing uh, stuff to media, to picture, and things like that. Mm. Uh, produced by Air, which is the uh, the Association of Independent Reco- um, Recordists. I've forgotten what the actual acronym stands for now, but basically the independent producers, producer group that George Martin set up with some other people mm-hmm. when he went independent and loaned himself back to EMI. And it comes out on the 23rd of December, 1966, on United Artists. It doesn't chart, which in this case you wouldn't expect it to because it's instrumental film music. Yeah. Rather than it being a, an attempt at a pop song. Yeah, it's not, yeah. So it's this and all the soundtrack album is credited to Paul McCartney. There's no Beatles version to talk of because it's not ever really been a Beatles song. Yeah. So... Um, I don't think we need to explain who the George Martin Orchestra is. It's George Martin with his bunch of musicians he gets together to do stuff. Yeah. Um, so, so just, yeah. I was just going to say a bit more, ask, ask you a bit Go more on. about the genesis of... That. So you're saying how he had to have it kind of dragged out of him. And he, he had agreed to do something, but he wasn't quite doing it or something. Or So apparently what's happened is um, at some point Paul said to Brian Epstein, oh, I'd like to do some film music, so just keep your eyes out, open. Your yeah. eyes out. Keep your eyes out. <laughs> yeah. uh, so what happens is eventually the this film comes to to be being made, and the Bolting brothers who are producing it ask him to to write his, a score for it, and he's like, "Yeah, okay, I'll do that." And then promptly does naff all. Right. Yeah. And uh, I think at the time there was some contemporary reports that John thought they would be doing this together, but actually Paul ends up being the one it's you know is supposed to be doing it. Mm. And so he calls on George Martin to say, all right, can you help me do this film score? Makes sense. George has done some film music, mm. knows how to orchestrate. Uh, so, yeah, the quote you need to know, it comes, there's a few quotes from George Martin about this from, there's one in his book, All You Need Is Ears. Mm. They had got Paul McCartney to write the basic themes. I was to score them and write the incidental music, but I needed more material than he had given me. So he has to go over to his house. So Paul's given him this, basically this snippet of a tune. Mm. It's beautiful, yeah. you know, fine, but it's a little snippet of a thing. But basically, George has to go around and stand over him at the piano to get more material out of him to actually do enough stuff, give him enough stuff to go yeah. away and write all these variations and, and do all the orchestration required to make enough music for this film. Mm. So Paul essentially just freaks out and gets writer's block with right. this. And so actually... We're not sure that he actually contributed as much as much music as exists for the film. It's spun off from a very small part of of composition from Paul McCartney, right? Through the skill of George Martin, yes. So that's where we are with this. A relationship well forged by this point of doing that kind of thing is yeah spinning off. But apparently, this this really was he sort of landed George in it a little bit with Uh, this one because it was like. I need some, some more stuff, Paul. Okay, I'll get you something and it's just not coming out. And Yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, it's very, something very different this time for this, this run of episodes, isn't it? Um, mm-hmm. And it's one where I've got to dust off my A-star and GCSE music to talk about it, really. It's, it's completely instrumental, completely kind of orchestral 
type of instruments, but um, with guitar, with kind of Spanish guitar. Um, I mean, it's lovely. It's really lovely. It so, is. I mean, that's... Very that's, wistful. That's one way just to kind of sum it up all together. I mean, it's, it's what I'd expect from a McCartney-Martin collab. Um, you know, arranged beautifully, memora- um, memorable melodies, flowing chord progressions and harmonies in the instrumentation. Um, the only difference is rather than that being voices and guitars or piano and maybe some, you know, orchestration, this is takes the form of a Spanish guitar finger-picking flute solos. I think. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's a tenor flute. That might be a tenor flute that yeah. does the the theme because it's quite a uh, full, low sound. A little bit like the flute uh, that they use on uh, the coda of You've Got to Hide Your Love Away. Mm. Classical guitar and tenor flute to start it off and then it sort of builds in this string ensemble yes. on, into it and like other the things. Legato strings. And then the, the, the variations swapping between the lead instruments as it develops the theme. Yes, which indeed. Which is kind of... To entirely imagine is, is is all George Martin really by that point. So even without the uh, added info, I would have presumed that he then spun it out into the kind of the usual kind of theme development and recall and coming back to it and all that stuff. Yeah, and much- sort of takes it through the sort of the way you would as a composer. Yeah. So it's a very minor key piece, but then there's a lovely section where it goes into the major key. Mm. And then it moves back, it moves the tune then down into the lower strings. So you have this yes, sort of bass recapitulation into the sort of cellos and things, mm. which is nice. They can underpin and progress the theme, don't they? And we, yep. we go back to a modulated version of it. And it's it's just like, like a mini concerto in three minutes, ten. And it, it covers such a lot of ground in such a short time. And just using that main theme, which is essentially about nine notes, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it is. That's it. That's how fragmentary it is. And that's it. But it's great. I love it. 88 for music, I'm giving it. Mm-hmm. Because it's a lovely bit of music. And then production. Um, there's really not much to say that I don't like. There's one bit when the flute is duetting. Yes. Where I think it's a bit... Le- Flutes, for me, can cross that threshold sometimes of being slightly on the too too loud side side of things. They can go from being beautifully soft and airy and then a bit bare. And when there's the two flutes, it's just a, l- a slightly bit too harsh for me. Not completely as in it's like just slightly noticeable, but it lasts about a bar. You know, other than that, it's perfect, I think, production-wise for, for what they're doing. It's very nice to listen to the version that's um, accessible now because it's from the remastered thing mm. uh, of when they finally did a remaster of the Family Way soundtrack. It's very nicely done in general. Mm. Yeah, and it's um, it's really closely marked, so you can actually, if you listen really carefully, I'm sure you can hear the guitarist, whoever that is. I take it it's not Paul, is it? No. It's going to be a proper, um, I say proper. Yeah, proper, <laughs> proper guitarist, unlike that Chancer McCartney. <laughs> yeah. No, you know, it's um, the, the, the session guitarist, you can or someone, you can hear someone slightly breathing. A bit I think, of, well, you can hear a lot, and, and I think that's important to note because... So what happens is they this film's being shot in I think in Shepperton mm. film studios and they're expected to record the score there. Yeah. Where they would have recorded loads of film scores over the years. But George goes down to have a look. And the way it's set up in in Shepperton for recording music is like huge boom mics over everything way yeah. up up in this So there's for a man used to producing in a in Abbey Road mm. and a man used to producing pop records with, as we've mentioned already, close miking things, mm. he goes like, well, there's a spill all over these microphones. I've got no control over it if we record it. Mm. Um, it's a huge space. It's not 
had the treatment that a, a decent London studio would have had. Mm. And plus also it, the all the people working there, it's highly unionized. So the film production industry is highly unionized. Mm. So it's whereas George would have walked down into Abbey Road and moved a microphone around and stuff like that himself. Yeah. If he'd have done that in Shepperton, he would have been like they would have been like, right, down tools, lads, strike. Right. Because he would have crossed the line of, of working. Yeah. Which you know, unions are very, very important. Um but you get these circumstances where they butt up against working practices from other areas. Yeah. So they, they said, well, do a test session here and if you don't like it, then you can go off and do it somewhere else. So they did a test recording in, in Shepperton and he's like rubbish and we go off to cts instead and get this amazing version that we get now yeah. rather than it being just like every other film score sound it's more like a pop recording yeah and it's really so you can hear breath noise you can hear the bows on the strings and all that sort of stuff it's like creak of a chair all that sort yeah. of stuff yeah it's lovely and i'm giving it 82 for production because it's 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 really nice yes but there's no lyrics oh no um, which means it doesn't can't even sing along to this one. Is uh, we'll get to one where you can sing along the title to it. You can't do it with this one. You can't go. Oh, it's love in the open air, no. open air, lovely love. <laughs> yeah, no. um, yeah. So it gets an overall of fifty six point seven um, because of that. And, um, it just seems so unfair. It does. <laughs> no, it seems We're back like... at this problem. No, but um, and there's no beatles version so um we've got nothing to listen to um because there wouldn't have been much from the sound of it anyway um, no well that, there's obviously it was well covered in the newspapers and things like that so i've got in front of me from the daily mirror on the 22nd of december 66 mm. uh, a lovely picture of paul with his pepper mustache coming in uh sat at a piano with george martin looking as devilishly handsome as always mm. Two men at work on Beatle music, Paul McCartney and George Martin. The title is Shh, Composers at Work. And it's all about them composing and, and working together. Yeah. Beatle Paul was asked by the film producing Bolting Brothers to write the music. He did, supervised by George Martin, putting it mildly. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a bit of that in everything that they did together. You, you, in another, if George Martin was a different type of person. He may have demanded more props than he got, I think, for a lot of stuff, probably. Yeah, so for Paul McCartney, this film project was probably the greatest test he had to face since becoming a Beatle. Uh, he came through riots around the world without losing a hair. He has continually been the hero of million-selling discs that play for under three minutes, but the Boltings asked him for 26 minutes of music in one go. Undaunted, Mr McCartney took himself off to Africa for a f safari holiday. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, and then right, it's like there's a quote like Paul came up first with 15 seconds of a theme, <laughs> right? So even at the time he was talking about yeah. this, this stuff. And but the stupid thing is, well, not stu well, it is kind of stupid. So the Ivan Novello Awards, which is given out for sort of show showbiz awards songwriting, mm. uh, in the following year when John and Paul get awards for She's Leaving Home and uh, Hello Goodbye yeah. for sales and best song stuff like that. Uh, Love in the Open Air nets Paul an Ivan Novello award. Right. <laughs> Nothing for George. Oh, dear. Oh. Well, we all know, really, don't we? Yeah, well, yeah we do. <laughs> we all know now. Um, Okie doke. Well, let's have a look at something else. See if this one's got any words. Cat Call, the Chris Barber Band. <laughs>
cat called Paul. Come here, Tiddles. Come here, Tiddles. <laughs> come here, tiddles. You're coming. <laughs> That's what cats are called, isn't it? Yes. I don't know. Not my cat. cat. My... No, you've just given your cats human names. No, I, they already came named. They came pre-named from the from the factory. Yeah. Where we pressed the activate, <laughs> the activate button on them. My name is James. Go on. <laughs> James the cat. Yeah. Oh, I hadn't even thought about it being called James the cat. That's insane. Do you remember the cartoon James the um, Cat? No. This is turning into looks unfamiliar. Anyway, mm. let's move on. Cat Call. Yep. Again, a McCartney tune, which I find very strange when we look at the origin of this. I don't think it should be a McCartney tune. Okay. I think it should be dual credited, if not treble credited. Mm. But this is recorded by the Chris Barber Jazz Band on the 20th of July, 1967, in Chapel Recording Studios, produced by Giorgio Gomelski, who basically oversaw Marmalade, uh, which was our, uh, a record label on Polydor Records. Right. Uh, and it's also Reggie Kind and Chris Barber working on the production of this. It's released on the 20th of October, 1967, and doesn't chart. Again, I'm not. it doesn't surprise me, because it's not a pop song. Although I think it should have done, really. It's very good. Uh it does end up on a Marmalade Records compilation in 1968, and it is credited to Lennon-McCartney on that, but the actual single, it's just credited to McCartney. Yeah. And it does end up on the Chris Barber band LP, Battersea Rain Dance, in 1969, with a, a sort of novelty credit for Paul McCartney, which is Yell by Paul McCartney, copyright Apple Publishing. Right. Um, but there is a, a notable Beatles version of this, which we'll get to. Mm. But, yeah, this is something a bit different, isn't it? Well, it is. You're hitting me with some very strange ones today. It's a very um, interesting episode of of weirder things and different things. It's (laughs) another instrumental. And it couldn't be more different than the last, really, or indeed anything we've listened to so far in over 50 episodes of this podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, I mean, mean, even with the last one, you, you, you could imagine it. Kind of, you know, had it, it was kind of a cousin to a lot of the kind of arrangements of things. Um, you could hear that George Martin influence, obviously, because it was George Martin. Was this one? It's like, well, the Beatles do ragtime or whatever it is, ragtime jazz. I don't know. Trad, trad jazz. Trad, trad jazz, jazz. Is it? Yeah. So yeah, makes it all of a sudden. I'm in a world of jazz, feeling like some wily old cat in a sleazy, smoky club, tilting my fedora or something. I don't know. It's just a different yeah. world. Tilt away. Yeah. Um, it's a different world musically as well, and one that I have no qualm with, but it's very outside of my usual reference points for this podcast. So, um, yeah, so I, I'm kind of mainly into, mainly full of questions about how this came into being. But, you know, I've I, I've listened to the Beatles version, which we'll talk about. But, yeah, it's it's a strange one how it how they, well, it's hard not to talk about the Beatles version, isn't it? Because... Well, let me outline who the Chris Barber band yeah, were first. Yeah, that will help, yeah. So, very, very important person, Chris Barber. Mm. So, he was a band leader. He himself sort of played trombone and, and or double bass, not at the same time. It's impossible to do. Okay. Uh, Chris Barber, I think he only died earlier this year, in fact. And so, he starts out in the uh, 50s, I think he starts with, a sort of New Orleans-style jazz band. Mm. He forms that, it's sort of all down in London way, uh, of which one of the members is Lonnie Donegan. 
Oh, yeah, well, I know that. And so thing. on one of these, so what the band used to do is they'd have this step out thing where Lonnie Donegan would step out and do some of his own stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, not his own stuff. He'd do stuff in essentially skiffle style. Right. And it was these early sessions with Lonnie Donegan doing that that produces Rock Island Line. And we know about Rock Island Line as being just a hugely influential recording in, in the UK for the skiffle boom. Mm. Sort of triggers it. So we've got Chris Barber's band featuring Lonnie Donegan. He does his own stuff, skiffle sections out of that. Essentially triggers the boom of music making that makes the Beatles come to be. Okay. Which is amazing. Yeah, yeah. But, but so when we think of, of jazz or trad jazz stuff, uh, if you're thinking about it in the 60s, you might turn your attention to some of the early Bonzo dog records. But the thing with Chris Barber's stuff is, although a lot of it's very, a lot of fun, it's not, it's not art art pop nonsense like the bonzos are doing mm. and i mean that in the best way because i love the bonzos yeah. but it, it was deliberate art pop nonsense based around 1920s trad jazz tunes mm. what chris barber's doing is he's doing it very authentically it's because he really believes in this new orleans style stuff he, the people he's playing with are really authentic players mm. and he gets people into the band like alexis corner and all these people who eventually lead sort of lead the british blues boom you know, that really authentic bluesy thing. Mm. So he's got a very important role to play in, in British music at this point. And they're obviously around. It's all about being authentic and being a bit sort of, you know, looking back to the American influences and trying to do it well. Yeah. And and all that stuff. And I think what's happened is they're around at this point and uh, McCartney's got to know them. And he's like, oh, you know what? I've got a tune they could do, you know, in my back pocket. Yeah. And and that's what happens. He so, gives it to them, and he, he he's there, and they arrange it and turn well, up this thing. Yeah, yeah. So I, I I just couldn't when I first heard this, I just couldn't figure out how does this come from a Beatles song or demo or whatever. But it's pretty much as we'll hear in a bit. The the Beatles version is the the main theme is being played on a guitar, like like something they'd do as a little instrumental break on stage, just play yeah you're used to hearing them playing with latin kind of sounding music and playing with you know spanishy sounding music and french sound you know they do this kind of thing but i've just ne- never heard them doing it with um trad jazz so I think yeah it's just because the, first the, Be- time yeah. That, yeah, heard. the beatles version is obviously them as a four piece really yeah. early on uh and it's a sound that they don't really have anywhere else on any other recording. That's the thing. I th- yeah, I think it, it, it... Not even Cry for a Shadow is similar. No, no, exactly. But as far as what this is, the players are evidently great. The brass are. soloists are fab. The backing band keep it really swinging, as you'd expect for this kind of thing. The vocal harmonies, so there's no lyrics, but there are vocal oohs um, that are kind of eerie and cool. Yeah. Sometimes a little loose. Kind of starts off a bit strange on the ear but then it kind of settles in the keys are cool as well there's a bit of keys playing as well oh the organ on this yeah, is nice yeah. yeah there's a sort of counter melody thing going on so the, the melody is and there's a point where the organ's doing something opposite to that mm. accompanying it weaving around it it's really cool um and, and and i also have to say about the vocal harmonies in the chorus is there any implication that mccartney and lennon are in those voices or either of them are in there no there's no well there's no john no. Okay. At the recording session, so apparently they tried to record this live in one of the jazz clubs in uh, London, hmm. uh, jazz blues club or whatever it was, and it didn't really go very well. So they go off to Chapel Recording to do it, 
And it's a, there's a crowd of people there, which includes McCartney. Mm. And I think probably Jane Asher as well at the time. And as this song gets into its second half, yeah, you start to hear the people around their sort of audience whoops and hollers. And yeah. at one point you hear a real McCartney like yelp. Mm. So at some point someone shouts, please play it slower. Yeah, and it comes back. Which yeah. s- some people are crediting to being McCartney, but I think it is actually Giorgio Gamelsky. Yeah. So he said, please play it slower. And then just after that, you hear someone do a proper McCartney woo noise, yeah. which I was going to try and do then full volume. <laughs> but <laughs> um, And he's there in that, that sort of whooping and hollering audience sound, which adds to the real fun of the piece. Yeah. I mean, it's... Um it, yeah, I like that. And then it comes back in. after that. It kind of it breaks down, doesn't it? It's like a little yeah, comedy interjection yeah. where it breaks down, and they come back and they do it in that halftime, like big kicky leg type of thing. Dun, 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 dun. Boom! You know, it went to really yeah, slow. Yeah. Um, that's cool. Um, but the, I, I, I'd be surprised if he's not singing in the kind of like ooh bits, you know, that go on because he's there. So. Well, no, I don't think he is because no. I mean, there's a photo from the session, and you would have to be on the mic. Oh, to he do wasn't that, on and the stage, it right. doesn't look like he's on the mic. Okay. So. It's cool. It's good. I like it. 79 for music. Cool. Production. It's not as neat production-wise as the last one, but it sounds great mostly. Um, I mean, it's not being produced by George Martin, is it? Closely mic'd and everything being perfect. No. And it, and it wouldn't be this sort of thing. It's amazing that they if they recorded this with more than one microphone, because there's a sort of, you know, this thing about authenticity, which is always, yeah. you always say authenticity in speech marks, because it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult term to yeah. deal with. But... The fact that it's a recorded at all, <laughs> yeah. and b not recorded like around one mic with people taking step up solos to the mic is interesting. Yeah. So it's it's recorded in a more complex way than that, but it is still very loose to sort of fit in with that. Yeah. That style of jazz feel, and you get that crowd interjection and cheering is is good, but it goes on a little bit too long, and you struggle to hear the music over it um, for for a little while. It's, it's just gets a bit. It's it's a bit confusing there until you kind of click into what's happening and it's like oh the music's still there it's come back in half time it's great because it then it settles into it but it's a it's a bit could have done with a bit of, bit of mix in there but it's um I'm still going to give it seventy five for, for production as well because um yeah it's got, it's got no lyrics so I feel guilty for it so <laughs> it gives it fifty one point three overall ah oh, I see this is curse that lyrics score mm. or lack of but I mean yeah it didn't really matter so much in the main podcast because there was a knew there'd only be one one instrumental to, <laughs> yes, to, be, true, yeah. to be dealing with so everything else was to do with covers where but um this is where they obviously kept all their instrumentals for other people but the, just to talk about the beatles version then so i was as i say i was astounded when there was a i saw there was a beatles version for this because i just thought oh, this has got to come from something he's done and someone's taken and span it off into this but um so where the beatles version that's on anthology i think isn't it um no, no, it's not on there, no. For no. some reason, it should be. But it's... I have no idea why it's not. The, the Beatles version, where's that being recorded? Where, where, what's that session from? Because it's all of them, isn't it? It's like a... I th- well, I think it's, it's cropped up before. There's the, They did a rehearsal in the cavern at one point where they, they ran through, like, it's where some of those early versions of 1 After 909 um, exist from. Right. Oh, yeah, it was a well. cavern rehearsal. That was it. Cavern rehearsal. Yeah. So they they do a couple of versions of cat of what's called Cat's Walk. 
at yeah. the time. Um, it becomes cat call when it gets given to Chris Barber. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's them doing an instrumental, like a sort of beat band instrumental, but in this sort of weird jazzy style. And George using his whammy bar on his guitar is, is, is you know, yeah. tremor harm, which you don't hear on really anything else at all because it wasn't really his style. No. But it's quite complex, you know, harmonically for them to be playing. Yeah. It's, it's but they, they they do it and it just doesn't turn up anywhere else in any more formal terms. Yeah. So I wonder if it's just slightly just too different for them. Just, yeah, I think it would have been one of those things that have used to fill time in Hamburg and yeah. in some of those weird circumstances that they found themselves playing in as, as an early band. But they obviously knew it because the rehearsal in 62 has got Ringo on drums. Mm. So were they playing it with Pete before that and having it and teaching it to Ringo? Was it still in the set enough that they thought, well, we better get Ringo to work through it Yeah. just before they break absolutely huge? Yeah. And we never hear about it again. Yeah. Not, uh, not even on anth- anthologies and stuff like you say. It's, uh, yeah, yeah. But it's, it's worth, it's worth a listen, but this is where I think it should be credited to, because Catcall, like I say, is credited to McCartney. Mm except on that weird compilation where it's listed as Lennon-McCartney, and I think that's just a clerical error. I think it should probably be a Lennon-McCartney-Harrison thing. Yeah. Because I have no doubt George would have... Because it's all about lead guitar on their version. Yeah. And whilst I'm sure he wouldn't have written all of the tune, I'm sure his input in terms of playing it on the guitar and doing all the, the bits would have should have earned him a credit on that. So it should be a Lennon-McCartney-Harrison uh, credit... I think in the end, well, unless Paul turned up saying I've got this thing, and John was playing the chords, and Paul was going ding, diddling, ding, ding, and George just was basically had to play that. I'm not well, trying to tell you what to play, George. I just I can hear myself telling you. That's what he was saying to him. I reckon. Yeah, started a long time yeah. before I get back. <laughs> well, it's a very interesting one. Let's go on to the next one, which is "Step Inside Love," Silla Black. Coming out of the cold, rest your head on my shoulder and love me tonight I'll always be here if you should need me Night and day, step inside love And stay, step inside love Step inside love Step inside love, Paul well, I I am inside. Step in, do do you do you hear it as step inside love? Oh, in my mind, I've put a comma in. Oh, step inside, step love. inside love. Yeah. Oh, yeah. come on, love. Not like step inside love. It's like step inside duck, like you'd say around where yeah. you live. Yeah. <laughs> All double meaning is lost, then, isn't it? Yeah. Unless you're actually literally stepping Talking inside a duck. duck. Yeah. <laughs> Get inside this duck. Hide out in a lake. I was going to carry on then, but I'll stop. Anyway, Silla Black song, um, which is released on the 8th of March, 1968, spends nine weeks on the chart, peaks at number eight, so it's a top ten hit. Yeah. It's demoed in November 67, and those versions are available on bootlegs with Paul and Silla and George Martin. Uh, It's produced by George Martin. Accompaniment is directed by Mike Vickers, who was in Manfred Mann and was a very early adopter of the Moog synthesizer. Okay. Not that that features here or anything. No, that's just that's just true. information. There, yeah, like I say, you can find a bootleg of Paul and Scylla and George working on this, and of course there is a version of them doing it on the sort of Lost Paranoia section of the White Album sessions, right? 
which is on Anthology 3 and in the White Album box. And it's essentially, it's the theme for Scylla's new TV show. Okay. So that starts, it's called Scylla Black insists that you step inside, love. Do it now. But that's not what it's called. No. But yeah, it's Scylla gets her own TV show in the 60s and then all the way through to the 80s and 90s. Yeah. In one form or another. Uh, yeah, so McCartney's asked by the producer of the show to give them a tune. He gives them a sort of verse-chorus demo, and they have a little short version that works with the first few episodes of the show, and then they work it up into this fuller song. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, so it's it's yeah. it's been come into being as a as a TV theme. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, so was a show just out of interest? Well, was it just like one of those kind of like, it's the Scylla show where it could be music, skits, interviews, just anything. It wasn't one of the format shows like we're used to in the 80s. It wasn't like a a, a um, proto-blind date, was it? No, it was just called Scylla. Yeah. And it ran for a few series into the mid-70s, in fact. But there was the same, I think Lulu had a show as well and yeah, things like just, that. Just it, like was, a, um, it was a way of sort of diversifying the careers of, of entertainers. Yeah. Okay, okay. Well... Again, something else altogether again here um, from everything else in this episode and, and not everything else in this run because it's Scylla and they, there's there's a way they write for Scylla, isn't there? You've got a sweet, soft Scylla with nice acoustic backing, lovely finger-plucked guitar chords. Again, very yeah. very jazzy again, but in a, in a different type of jazziness, really, this time with lovely suspended notes and major sevenths and things like, you know, very, very mellow-sounding... Very, very um, South American, Spanishy, yeah, samba chord, yeah, and then it goes into kind of a mad soul rock chorus that just yeah. explodes out of the song and into your brain, like it just goes all Dusty Springfield or something. It just gets big, doesn't it? You know. Oh yeah, I suppose that's a way of thinking of it. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. And uh, the first time I heard it, I didn't know what was going on. It just <laughs> sounded like noise. But then the the more I listened to it, the more I like it. Okay. Glad to hear it because I really like this yeah. song. Yeah, oh, it's a good one. I mean, you can tell it's written for Scylla, and it's funny because every time we talk about Scylla, we talk about her range and about her different voices, and how some people don't like her big voice, and some people do, and or she, or she doesn't always deliver it in a way that people like it. Funny enough, I played this for my wife, um, and uh, she she's the same. She doesn't like it when she opens up and sings the loud bits. But I, I, I again, it doesn't seem to get bother me. And this one, I think, a big voice is kind of like joins the mad volume of the whole chorus anyway. I think they do something clever here mm. with this, and and it sort of crosses between music and production. They've written it so I think it was originally written in the key of D, right? A guitarist's key to write in very much so. Yeah. But when they come to do it for Scylla to, to suit her voice and to find the right bit of her voice, the right bit of her range, mm. they transpose it up to G. Okay. Which again, not a difficult key for a guitarist, but it's, you know, it starts off with Paul playing. So Paul writes loads of things in D over his years on the yeah, guitar. Yeah. You know, he's, this is Calico Skies and all that sort of stuff. Um, but it ends up in G. And I think they've done that because that's the right, it gives Scylla the right range where she doesn't have to do too much switching of her voice. No. And so what they do is when they need it to be louder, which is where her voice um, timbre changes. Yeah. In this instance, they—I think what they've said to her essentially is, "Don't go as hard on it this time. 
try and stick in the same sort of voice and we'll double track you. So they strengthen a voice through a little bit of double tracking. Okay. Which I think really, really works on this. Oh, okay. Um, Scylla sounds great on this. Absolutely. This, this is a, fantastic. If you need an example of why she was a, a star and, a, and had hit records, I think Step Inside loves the, is the answer. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's 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 good, um, and she, and her soft her soft small voice is absolutely beautiful. It's really yes, it spot is, yeah. on. Um, yeah, and and she she more than matches via that production technique and the way that she's singing the the louder parts, the the string trills, the brass backing, the huge um, kind of drums. And 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 I love the way this song just keeps on building and falling and building and falling. Well, I say the way it does it about three times, doesn't it? It just follows the same yeah. pattern. Yeah, but it does what woman doesn't do is that it has dynamics. Yeah, it doesn't just build. Which means that when it goes loud, loud, it's much much more effective. Yeah, because the difference between the the loud and the soft is more extreme. Exactly. It's really nice. It's a really nice song. It's really nicely sung. It doesn't sound like Paul or John, but we know John's not really involved in this. But Paul at all it really shows paul writing for the artist i think here yeah in a way where you know in a different universe if he'd not have been famous himself he could have easily have been the the name behind so many people who yeah. you yeah. learned about later on in life oh it's all the same guy you know he wrote all those things and and this is showing that you know he he could write in other people's voices as well uh, it's a treat and i'm really digging silla's sound so, um, 79, 79 for music. Wowzers. And production. Um, it's like you've just said a lot of this, really. It's really well produced again. Um, the subtlety of the finger plucked guitar sound, in contrast to the huge brass and chorus, is, is, is handled really well. Mm-hmm. The dynamic range is very wide, and you don't feel that it loses anything for it or distorts. And, and when it does come in, it really hits you around the chops without it just being a volume thing it's a it's a it's a fullness thing isn't it but you can still hear things like tambourines and shakers pushing it along that shows how good the separation is i think you know as in like you've got all this big noise big brass but you can still hear the very precise tick 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 coming from the kind of percussion yeah i don't think it's what you said about the double track vocals yeah, I've got nothing more to add. It's it's just it's a very well very well produced record, and again has has had a, a decent remix as well in later years or remaster rather yeah. in, in later years to to keep it sounding fresh. Well, I think I've heard. I think with this one, I may have stumbled upon both the remastered and non and original or earlier versions. Yeah. And they, 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 they well, you might even have stu- stumbled across a couple of the. Um, the versions that were done with, uh, like, uh, for a remix album in in the sort of twenty first century, oh. you know, d- DJ Tommy Sandu, I think, was did oh, did a version, oh, no, things I've, like that. I've definitely not heard <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah. But um, I'm going to give it eighty one for production. Nice. So lyrics, then. So we do have some lyrics this time to talk about. It's a it's a very sweet song, this one, and I think for once, compared to the other two two we've done, is it? Two sillas we've done so far mm-hmm. matches the style of the song. It doesn't feel like the song's kind of um, grandiosity is let down by its lyrics a little bit. I think it's very sweet versus all about the lovely things that love is, you know. But then that big concept, that double metaphor, double meaning of stepping inside love, which I think is is nice in that you do have that kind of like step inside love. You know, in the Northern English type of love, you know, come on, love. Yeah, well, I th- I have a feeling that that's probably 
part of McCartney's thinking because a lot of his stuff starts out like that. Yeah. You know, he sort of he sort of thinks of something that has, sounds like it's got a particular sound, and then he turns it into another thing. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, it would surprise me if he didn't think at some point of it like step inside, love. Yeah. You know, or Chuck or Pet. You know, step inside, love type thing and it's step inside love step inside like literally inhabit love yes the concept and also it's song for a TV show so you've got to get the audience in with you yeah yeah you need it to um, to go big and exciting and go something's about to happen and um, and also with a song with such a dynamic range like yeah literally turn people's heads if they weren't if you were wandering past the living room or someone watching this and the, the music suddenly goes, you're going to go, oh, what's that? Because it's it's gone from quiet to loud. So it's going to make you t- t- turn towards it. What's what's happening? What's 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 that ruckus? Um, but it's great and it deserves the big chorus. The, the, um, the theme of Step Inside Love deserves a big chorus sound and works well. So they're not groundbreaking, but I think they're the best ones of the Silla ones so far. And I think the Step Inside Love line is very good in and of itself. So I'm going to give it 61 for lyrics, which gives it 73.7 overall. Fair enough. Yeah. So you've already mentioned a bit about the Beatles version. Um, there's a little bit on the anthology. The one I've listened to is the anthology one then. So yeah, yeah. Th- let's have a little listen to that. You'd look time up, let me turn down the light. Coming out of the cold, rest your head on my shoulder and kiss me goodnight. We are together now and forever. Come my way. So, is there another one as well as that then? Well, there's there's this demo version, which is so it's not a Beatles version. It's Paul with Scylla and George doing their demo of it, working it out and trying okay. it out. And it is essentially just a piano and guitar run through with Scylla. Oh. So. There's not masses difference from actually what it ends up being, other than having the orchestra on it. But the anthology so, version is... Um, it's Paul taking the mickey. <laughs> of the thing he'd already written? Yeah. Oh, he's already done it at this point. Okay. Yeah. So, because this comes out... So, Scylla's thing comes out on the 8th of March, 1968, and the, mm. the Lost Paranoia um, White Album thing is 16th of September, 1968. So... Oh, so it's it's not like um, you're hearing something they were messing about with the studio that they, they ended up going to her... This is no, no, post no. having already kind of written it. Yeah, it's a bit like Paul doing Woman in Get Back. It's something he's already got and done. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's, it's nice to hear. I don't yeah, with John, like John and Ringo hitting percussion instruments yeah. to go along with this sort of groovy Latin feel. Yeah, I don't think it feels like they're taking the mickey, just having fun, I'd say. Just having some fun. Having a bit Larks. Of, a little bit of fun with it. All right, then. So on to our last one, then. We have... Thingy Bob, Black Dyke Mills Band. Thingy Bob, Paul. Not really much I can say to that, really. Thing of me, Bob, Gary. Thing of me, Bob. Yeah. So this is credited to Lennon and McCartney, but it's Paul again. Yeah. And it's, uh, well, actually, the technical name for this is the John Foster and Son Limited Black Dyke Mills Band. Right. Not just the Black Dyke Mills Band. 
except that the Black Knight Mills Band is what it's called now. It's just they dropped the John Foster and Son Limited bit years ago. Right. So this is a, a, a British brass band. It's a p- particularly British sound. It's a particularly northern British sound. Mm. It's, um, it's a beautiful sound. A good brass band is a, is a, is a joy to behold, mm. really. Um, and they are sort of born out of the Industrial Revolution when a lot of people are, uh, you know, mills are huge buildings full of tons of people. And one of the ways that they build a community around that is sometimes they'll do entire things like like build entire new towns and villages to, yeah. to base, like Saltair, which we'll talk about in a second. Uh, and they would encourage community things like um, like brass bands. So uh, so this it crops up all across the north of England, uh, all these various brass bands to, associated with different companies, mills and things like that. Yeah. It's particularly in Yorkshire. Aye. Aye, lad. And uh, yeah, so and, and basically the most famous one becomes the Black Dyke Mills Band, and that's okay. who McCartney ends up working with to produce this instrumental piece called Thingamy Bob, hmm. uh, which has got a flip on the flip side, has got Yellow Submarine on it. In, done by the brass band. Oh, right. <laughs> and, you know, it's another thing that doesn't chart, but it's the, it's the theme to a TV programme. Ah, I was going to ask you about this. What kind of a TV programme, Paul? It's a comedy show made for ITV. It was made for London Weekend Television. It was just a new franchise, and it's one of their first um, new comedies that they do when they sort of come online, because obviously the... the, the the uh, ITV franchise is coming to being during the mid-60s. Mm. And it's a programme starring Stanley Holloway, who lots of people will know from various films and comedy th- things yeah. that he's done. Uh, our granddad, our mum's dad, mm. used, Stanley Holloway used to do these monologues, and he used to do one called The Albert and Lion. Oh, I, I've, I know it, because we've got it yeah. on the... Um, You'll have it on one of your on the CD. kids' CDs. yeah. yeah. Um, but Grandad used to do that one. For, used to recite that one to us when we were little. Did he? Yeah, there's a famous seaside town called Blackpool that's noted for fresh air and fun. And Mister and Missus Ramsbottom went there with young Alfred, their son. Alfred Albert, their son. Even I got it wrong. Sorry, wow, I've been. I've heard that on CD of quite you know a few times you bought since you got is it? And um, I, I, it's not. I've never knew that Grandad used to sing, say that to us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, when we were little. So anyway, Stanley Holloway plays the the, the main guy in this uh, in this uh, TV program, which was written by Kenneth Cope, who again people will know from many different things, such as uh, Randall and Hopkirk deceased and all sorts of stuff. Mm. And Stanley Holloway stars with John Junkin, who was in Hard Day's Night, and he plays this sort of old age pensioner who just gets up to gets up to scrapes and schemes. And I don't know whether it still exists in any form at all. Oh, do you? Well, no, no, I would have thought it would have, something would have leaked onto YouTube, but I couldn't... Get I suspect it might be a lost to the ages type thing or it's locked away in a vault never to have been seen again. So could you say, Paul, that it was basically a situation comedy? Yes. So it was a sitcom? Yes. Yeah. So, because... Um, you said I, that in a very ominous way, like uh, you were going to trap me into some well, sort of... because... <laughs> you know, right. um just because last week we were talking about the um, sitcom music and you said, ah, we might have one coming up. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, this is it. I was, I was, I was, basically, I was like, I think it's this one. Like, Yes. You, well, you're right. It you is. weren't really trying to hide it from me that it was. So <laughs> I felt like I'd got you. But yeah, no. So this is, this is, 
the, the, the Beatles sitcom music. Yeah, so I can't tell you anything about the show other than what I've told you there. Yeah. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, approach Paul McCartney, get him to do a, a theme song. He decides to use the Black Dyke Mills band, possibly inspired by the experience he'd had writing and working with George on the Family Way soundtrack because they used brass bands on that, mm. northern brass band sounds. And I think, again, it's another fantastic piece of music. It's... yeah. Yeah, they record it on the 30th of June, 1968, up in Yorkshire, in Saltaire. Uh, Paul produces it himself, and it's arranged and conducted by a chap called Geoffrey Brand, who was with the Black Dyke Mills Band for a long time, very famous conductor of them. Mm. Uh, and it comes out on the 31st of August, 1968, on Apple Records. So it's one of the first Apple Records singles that comes out. Right. And, again, that's why we've got... Uh, they've all been remastered and re-released since, so that's why you can hear a really nice version of this mm. when you look it up on Spotify or whatever. It's great. Fab. Yeah. Market fab. Yeah, it's great. Um, there's not much else to, there's not much to say about it because it is, it is that kind of frumpy Northern brass band sound, isn't it? You know, mm-hmm. umpari kind of like upbeat, you know, Wallace and Gromit. <laughs> Well, that's where a lot of people will know the sound yeah, from, yeah. is the Wallace and Gromit sort of music. That kind of, that style, you'll know, yeah, from the, the um, that, their main theme music. Um, yeah, it's, it's 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 a brass band ensemble with a triangle or a xylophone, would it be? What is it? Oh, they always have, they always have accompanying percussion. Yeah, there's definitely. In, in, in those sorts of bands. I was trying to figure out if it was tuned or not, but um, it's playing a very happy, catchy little melody with a good old umpar backing. It, it's, I guess it's, in essence, kind of a march because it's got the dum, do, yeah. do feel to it, um, but without any big snare, just a little triangle or something ringing out every now and again. It's fun, harmless, makes you smile, you know? Yeah, it's, totally. it's It's what it is. Um, and it, it does the classic TV theme thing of the tune is entirely based around the syllable sound of the title of the show. Which is Thingy Me Bob. Thinger Me Bob, oh, Thinger Me Bob. Yeah. Thing me Bob. So it's like that, isn't it? Clearly. Yeah. Except that that that, that was that is that the theme? Is that the music? <laughs> thingy me Bob. Thingy me Bob. It's more like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. all right, I suppose it is, yeah. <laughs> you were singing something else, that's all. Yeah, you I was singing something else there. So pretty, just, just I was probably doing Wallace and Gromit or something. Thingy me Bob, thingy me Bob. Yeah. Thing me Bob. Although Wallace and Gromit can't be sung to Wallace and Gromit. Wallace and Gromit. Wallace and Gromit. I suppose you could, you know. Yeah. Anyway. I don't know what I was singing then. It's probably something very obvious that I've just Yeah, but that's what about. it was. It's something you, yeah, we'd have to listen back. We'll have a competition. If anyone knows what Paul was singing originally, put it on Twitter. And you can't have that 15 seconds and spin out a whole film soundtrack out of it <laughs> like with McCartney. You, you, I bet they could. If they oh, as long as to. I get all the credit, that's yeah. the important thing. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm going to give it 63 for music. Yeah. Um, and production, not again, not much to say. It's nicely produced. It's it's hard to kind of judge. I, I suppose if I heard a, bra- a bad brass band kind of a recording, I could go, oh yeah, this is better than that. So, but it doesn't sound bad. So, uh, and it is a brass band with, I say, really nice, clear whatever. That if it's a triangle or a xylophone, it's coming through quite nicely. Um, so I was just going to give it 75 for production, unless. Um, there's well, a- I'd say the thing to remember with this production is he's gone up to Saltaire, which is one of these model villages built by a mill owner. Yeah. 
all very sort of big uh, stone buildings and things like that. And they record some stuff outside, but they record this, I think, inside in the Victoria Hall there. And so the reverb you hear is a beautiful natural reverb of that recording space. And that would suit the brass band really well, wouldn't it? That's one of those instances where you really do want a nice kind of big echoey room a bit to... To, yeah. to, to, for, for, for brass band because um, and the recording apparently was was fairly fairly easy apart from a few interruptions by people coming to sort of gawp mm. and hang around and stuff and also that Paul had brought Martha the sheepdog with him who interrupted one of the takes oh Martha Martha by Martha. picking up a trumpet and doing a jazz solo <laughs> oh um I was going to say, I was going to make a joke about Martha, my dear, then, but it escaped me. Um, Which has a brass band bit in it. Well, would it have been recorded by this point? Uh, No. Well, you see, maybe Martha had some ideas and whispered them to Paul in the night. Um, So I'm going to give it 75 for production because it feels to me to be perfectly adequate for what it is. You know, yeah. it is a recording of a brass band. So, um, and there's no lyrics or uh, or Beatles version again. Thinga me Bob, oh, thinga me Bob, oh, thinga me Bob, thinga me Bob. Yeah. So I got it right that that's time, the, didn't That's I? what it goes like, yeah. What a prat. <laughs> Don't be harsh on yourself, Paul. Oh, I've ruined Christmas I, for brass band players everywhere. I couldn't sing it whilst I was listening to it in my headphones, so... Um, so that gives it 46 overall because of the um, terrible Aww. scoring system that I have adopted for this entire exercise. Can I just say, though, that the if anyone wants to look this up, I won't go into it in any detail now, but on the way back from there, um, doing the recording up in Saltaire, which is near Bradford yeah. in West Yorkshire, they head back and they on the way back to try and get something to eat, on the way back to London, mm. I think Paul's with Derek Taylor and a few other people, a couple of journalists and stuff. They stop off in a town called Harold. Okay. And I think the main reason they stopped there is, A, they want something to eat, and B, it's called Harold, and they thought it was funny. <laughs> yeah, it but but they hang around and go to all the pubs and have an amazing time. Right. And like, and Paul plays Hey Jude for people in a pub. Wow. And they go off and someone fixes them up some food and things like that. And it's, yeah, Peter Asher was there as well. Derek Taylor, Peter Asher. And um, there's, there's plenty of reports from people who were there at the time. And... Uh, I would look it up because it's it's a really interesting story about them just having a lovely time on the way back to London. We had a lovely time in Harold. Yes. <laughs> what did he think about it? Anyway, um, so that, I've never heard of yeah, it. Yeah, it's very well covered, this entire recording session and his journey back anyway. Yeah. So look on like the Paul McCartney Project dot com or the Beatles Bible or something. You'll find all the uh, eyewitness re- reports. Cool. So um, there we have it for our second to last Songs They Gave Away episode. And our last episode of this year, I should think our next one will be coming out in um, oh, first yes, week of, of New Year. Um, but first, let me do the charts. I'm not going to do all 20 songs that we've covered so far. I'm going to tell you where the two that didn't make it into the top 10 have landed. Right. And then do the top 10. So the two that didn't make it into the top 10 was Thingy Bob at number 18 and Cat Call at number 13, suffering terribly there for their lack of lyrics, I'm afraid. Oh, ah. <laughs> I know it's frustrating, isn't it? Um, but the top 10, however, goes like this. At number 10, I Don't Want to See You Again, Peter and Gordon. 
At number nine, Love in the Open Air, George Martin Orchestra. At number eight, From a Window, Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas. At number seven, Love of the Loved, Scylla Black. At number six, I'll Be On My Way, Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas. At number five, Bad To Me, by Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas. At number four, A World Without Love, Peter and Gordon. At number three, Woman, by Peter and Gordon. At number two, It's For You, Scylla Black. And our new number one, Step Inside Love, Scylla Black. Insane that Scylla is dominating. Scylla and Peter and Gordon are way up there, aren't they? Yeah. This is mad. Yeah. I, who knew, Paul? Who knew? I, I'm well, there you go. discovering things about myself. Um, yeah. I just like it. I think it's... So Laura, Laura laughs. I'm finding it a really, really interesting exercise, this. Yeah, so am I, to be honest, because I'm not as, as familiar with any of these, particularly, yeah. after the, particularly after the first handful that I knew from that record I was talking about all the time. But... Yeah. And, and and yes, I think because you've, I didn't expect there to be instrumental. So um, I had retrospectively, I should have thought about that a bit more because there's no way that I'd find Cat Call or Thingy Bob um, not as good as uh, um, the PJ, PJ Proby one or anything like that. But yeah. the thing is, all 20 of these are really interesting. I've not found any of them ha- haven't got something interesting in them as I no. think evidenced by the length of time all these episodes are taking. <laughs> so Yes, yeah, these are these are they're monsters. So we will be back in the new year. So everybody please have a happy new year and we will see you in twenty happy twenty two. Bye bye. Goodbye, Tiddles.